This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger speaks with Mr. Stephen Hadley, who served as the 20th United States National Security Advisor under President George W. Bush. They discuss Mr. Hadley's new book entitled Handoff, the foreign policy George W. Bush passed to Barack Obama, and the ongoing foreign policy and national security challenges facing the United States. Stephen Hadley, welcome to Reaganism. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's great to see you, and uh, you're known, of course, as your time as National Security Advisor from 2005-2009 under President George W. Bush, and before that, as a Deputy National Security Advisor uh, to uh, the National Security Advisor for the first term, Condi Rice, and a longtime national security hand in, in Washington going back a ways uh, prior to your service in the George W. Bush administration. But today, we're excited to welcome you to the show to talk about uh, your new book, Handoff, the Foreign Policy George W. Bush Passed to Barack Obama. And Steve, this is a really interesting one. And we kind of, be, before we jump into the meat, Maybe just take a, a minute or two to frame why you chose to focus on transition uh, and particularly uh, the national security foreign policy side of a presidential transition. Was that always something you had in mind to do? Uh, and no doubt you were probably were very popular amongst your staff when you asked them for transition memos as if they had nothing else to do as the George W. Bush administration was closing out its work. So maybe just give a little background and, and, and the selection to, to focus on this was a really unique set of memos and approach uh, to U.S. foreign policy and national security. Well, as you suggested indirectly in your comments, I've been around a long time. <laughs> and the first transition I was on or part of was the transition from President Ford to President Carter. Uh, and I was asked to stay on as part of the President Carter staff, which I did for three or four weeks into the Carter administration. That transition, I left work as the last day of the Ford administration and walked in the next day to my office as the first day of the Carter administration. And all the files that I'd been using for the last four years were gone because they, of course, are presidential records and they departed when Gerald Ford departed the White House. There were only three of us who were asked to stay on, three or four maybe. So when Spig Brzezinski came in for his first day of work as National Security Advisor, he had no documents, <clears throat> no staff, and I don't think we prepared any memos or anything to tell him what was going on on the issues that he was now responsible to manage. <clears throat> so we've come a long way. That is crazy. That is, that's a, that's a crazy picture. A NASCAR advisor crazy comes picture. in and, and <clears throat> nothing to draw from. And that's all because of the right. Presidential Records Act. I mean, the, the idea that it goes with the, in the National Archives and, and that president. That's exactly huh. right. Fast forward, George W. Bush calls Josh Bolton, his chief of staff, in early in 2008 and says, <clears throat> I don't know who's going to win this election, but whoever does comes into office is going to inherit two wars, one in Iraq, one in Afghanistan, the war on terror. And that was before we knew that they were also going to be inheriting the worst financial and economic crisis since the Great Depression. And Bush basically said to Josh, I want this to be the best presidential transition ever 
because I want to make sure that the new president and his team are as prepared as we can help make them to deal with the responsibilities they will have from day one when they come into office. And uh, blessedly, President Obama, the incoming president, had the same view. So I, one of the reasons we focused on transition was that was a unique transition, an outgoing Republican president, an incoming Democratic president, agreeing that they were going to try to break new ground in terms of what a presidential transition would look like. And part of that transition were these transition memos, which are, we've declassified 39 of them, of the total 40. 30 are in this book. They are exactly as we turned them over to President Obama and his team in January of 2009. We haven't edited them at all. And they show what we thought we found, our strategy, what we accomplished, and what was remaining for the Obama administration to do and what was likely to be a surprise for them in the opening months of their administration. So I want to get into <clears throat> the substance in those 39 memos you could speak about, the 30 that are published in the book, and, and um, kind of your own view as you come back to it, shockingly, right, some uh, 20, well, I guess not 20 years later, but, uh, you know, it's been, it's, it's been some time since President uh, George W. Bush left office. But before we get there, of course, when you came in as Deputy National Security Advisor, when George W. Bush was elected um, in January of 2001, that was a, a hezzy time as well because of, of Bush v. Gore. And I wonder for a minute, you were, you were reflecting on your experience staying over between Ford and Carter. What was it like when you entered the White House at the beginning of the George W. Bush administration, what was that transition like? Well, it was very rocky because there had been some who argued that from the day of the election, the President Bush should start preparing for a transition. And the President, in my recollections, the President turned down that advice because he didn't want to presume the outcome of the election. And I think he was right about that. The disadvantages we had probably roughly half the time you normally would have between election day and inauguration to do a transition and be prepared to step in and take, take over on January 20th. So it was a rush transition. And one of the things that we learned in the transition from Bush to Obama is you wanna start early. There's a lot you can do even before election day and you can engage the teams of both candidates for president before election day to really advance the transition process. We, just to, to, to make a point, we then took these transition memos and we did do just what you said. We did then look back, we, we wrote uh, with respect to each one, a postscript that brought them up to date. And then based on what has happened since, we tried to evaluate the Bush administration, what we got right, what we got wrong on each issue. And then finally, looking back 20 years, four administrations of different parties dealing with these issues, what are the lessons learned going forward? So we tried to both grade our papers, but also extract le lessons for new folks. Because, you know, one of the things that's interesting is all the issues we dealt with are still with us. They may be in a different form, but they haven't gone away. Well, that's where I want to go. I mean, the, the continuity here is, is, is striking. And, you know, I've so, some issues that we're dealing with and anticipating 
are uh, have evolved and and become dominant, whereas perhaps they were they were less so uh, in two thousand nine. Um, but let's start with the big one, which was defining for the Bush administration and certainly your tenure as as NASCAR advisor and deputy NASCAR advisor. And of course, we've we've had the twentieth anniversary of the uh, war in Iraq. How do you evaluate? Iraq now in light of these memos, light of the transition. So there's a broader, of course, national conversation of of lessons learned from Iraq and feel free to to jump in on that. But but really through the lens, Steve, of of this book and 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 the and the Iraq. uh, Memo. Yeah, it's a very tough issue. And Megan O'Sullivan wrote a very interesting postscript to the Iraq piece. A lot of people say, well, knowing what we know now, that he did not have stacks, stores of weapons of mass destruction and an inactive nuclear program, would we have gone to war? And my answer to that is if we had known then what we know now about his status of his WMD program, President Bush couldn't have taken the country to war, even if he'd wanted to, because we had overwhelming votes of both the House and the Senate on a bipartisan basis authorizing military action against Iraq, we could not have gotten those without, uh, without if, it was, if we had known at the time he didn't have any weapons of mass destruction. On the other hand, I have to say it's better for the Middle East that Saddam Hussein isn't there. The, <clears throat> the tragedy of Iraq really is the failure to stabilize Iraq in the post-invasion setting. Uh, The violence went out of hand uh, for about four years before the surge announced in January of 2007, which actually finally did break the back of al-Qaeda in Iraq and brought the insurgency down and the violence down to the point that it was not a threat to the Iraq uh, uh, government. And the Iraqis were then in a position to sort of move forward and try to rebuild their country. But we, we lost a lot in those four years, a lot of American lives, a lot of American treasure, overwhelmingly a lot of Iraqi lives, and four years when Iraq, Iraqis were not really able to build their country. And then we had, of course, we pulled out our troops in 2011. Uh, we then had uh, al-Qaeda reconstitute itself in Syria as ISIS. And before we know it, in 2014, they'd come in and taken 40% of the country of Iraq back as part of their caliphate. And the Iraqis then for the next four years was spent pushing these the ISIS out of their territory. And then of course, since that we've had meddling from Iran, we've had COVID, we've had energy instability in terms of energy prices, we've had climate change problems in Iraq. And I think the remarkable thing about Iraq is it is held together. Mm. Yes, it's a fragile democracy, but they've had over six elections and peaceful transitions of power. And we're beginning to see Shia, Sunni and Kurds working together in a democratic framework to build a prosperous and modern Iraq. And I I still think, in spite of everything, the Iraqis will make it and they will begin to be the kind of country they hoped for in the wake of the overthrow of Saddam Hussein and that we hoped for and tried to build. So let, let, let me hit on a, a few follow-up points related to Iraq. Fascinating. And, and I want to begin where, where you were concluding, which is 
Iraq's democracy. And as we've looked at the 20 year reflections on the beginning of the war in Iraq, there is a camp amongst conservatives, as you know well, who their lesson is we should never have been in the business of trying to advance kind of Western institutions, democracy in a, in a, in a place like Iraq. And, and we should have been, uh, uh, more focus on what was appropriate for you know their culture, their society, right? And this is a this is a, a longstanding kind of debate in terms of right. how the United States advances uh, its values overseas. Certainly, here at the Reagan Institute, we're unabashedly uh, supportive of advancing freedom in the world and those who seek freedom to help them support them. One thing that I've heard Megan O'Sullivan, who was a, your deputy. And, and, and led on Iraq within the National Security Council on, on your behalf, on the president's behalf. She views this, if I understood her correctly, as a lesson of where we've had success, kind of along the lines of your, your, you were just describing. And I recall her saying, the Iraqis wanted this. From this is- Al-Sassani, who was the most consequential, yeah. and perhaps still is, uh, Sunni cleric in Iraq. They wanted democracy. And then Steve, what you just outlined is that you, you, you seem to be optimistic that not only they've had elections and, and, and transfer of power, uh, but you think it's going to get, get stronger. Come down on that. I mean, I, do, do you see it the way Megan sure. does? Uh, but it's a fascinating debate. And, and what's so it interesting is. to me, and my last point is, it's not like there's a compromise position, meaning like if I put Megan in one place, she is double downing and saying this is success. Whereas the critics say this is the 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 the, the kind of the central piece of, of the failure. I think there's a lot of misconceptions. One misconception is that Bush went into Iraq to establish to impose democracy on the Iraqis through the barrel of a gun. That's not true. We went into Iraq for national security reasons to enforce. 17 UN Security Council resolutions and lots of statements from Americans, including in 1998, making regime change the policy of the United States government. Security Council resolutions and US diplomacy, because Iraq was supporting terror, pursuing WMD, we thought, uh, and was also uh, terrorizing his own people and invading his neighbors. That's what he was doing. And so we removed him for national security reasons. But then the question is, so what do you do now? And what the Iraqis told us is, we want your help to let us try to build a democratic society. Why a democratic society? One, because when you have Sunni and Shia and Kurds in the same country, our view and their view was the only way that country could hold together was as a democracy. And if it could hold together as a democracy, it would be a great example for the region. Because in the region, the models are either Sunni oppress Shia, Shia oppress Sunnis, and both of them beat up on the Kurds. So they wanted a democratic future. It was consistent with our values, but we thought it was also the only way to keep the country together. Mm. We did help them. We were able after the surge to stabilize the situation. We pulled out our troops in 2011. Everybody says Iraq is a forever war. They forget that all our troops were out on 2000, by 2011. But President Obama, not President Bush, sends the troops back in in 2014 to help the Iraqis throw ISIS out of their country. And the model for Iraq changes at that point. 
It is Iraqis in the lead to take responsibility for security with U.S. forces, not in combat missions, but in support and uh, training missions. And that continues to this day. So, so the forever war in Iraq ended in 2011. And what we have now is a very different model where we help the Iraqis take responsibility for their own security with a small number of US troops, now 2,500 in a training and support mission working by, with, and through Iraqis so that Iraqis can take responsibility for their own security. This is a different model. This is not endless war. And it's a, it's a smarter, sensible model. And it was also the model we were pursuing in yeah, Afghanistan. I'm, I'm glad you made that point. So, troops. I'm so glad you made that point. It's so true that the, the language of endless war, although it's, you know, catchy and, 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 you know, they get the headline, it's just not factual. And that's true both for, in my judgment, not only for Iraq, but we'll get to in a moment, Afghanistan as well. I mean, this is, this was right. uh, uh, a, a war that, concluded by the end of the Obama administration in terms of combat. Uh, and it was and it was far more uh, the sort of thing you were just describing vis-a-vis -vis Iraq, uh, where you had troops and support and contractors, but but not on the front lines like we saw during the the, you know, the thrust of the combat earlier in the Obama administration and the, the Bush administration. But but before we leave Iraq, a couple of follow up points and if they're not related. I'll just throw both of them out there and you can you can hit them as as you please. First, this is a book about transition memos, and, and part of the rationale, I assume, and you outlined this at the beginning, is the new administration needs to be kept up to speed. They need to know the lay of the land, and so the memos, as, as the declassified memos make clear, is that's what you're doing. You're giving information. But there's also an element of saying, hey, you might want to think about continuing this because in our judgment, we've looked at this you know, 50 different ways, move ahead. Iraq was one where Barack Obama, President Obama coming to office in, in, in January 2009, you knew he wasn't going to support the Bush administration approach to Iraq because he ran against it. Um, was it pushing forward the memos on Iraq? You know, that's kind of probably difficult, different than Afghanistan, uh, by contrast, where Barack Obama, that was a good war. You know, we recall the way he, he ran. That's question one. Question two is Iran's presence in Iraq and place in Iraq. They were there uh, when, and they were a problem, and they killed uh, U.S. troops as much as anybody in, in, in Iraq, that is, uh, Iranian-supported elements in, in, in southern Iraq. Uh, and then today, there's an argument to be made that Iran is benefiting more than any other country with the uh, democracy and stability that the U.S. fought so hard for and paid in, in lives and treasure. So hit on the kind of the, how, how the Obama administration inherited Iraq from these transition memos, and then kind of how you're looking at the Ron component. Roger, you're right. One of the motives in these transition memos was try to present the policy in a way that would make it easy for our successors to pursue the policy. In Iraq, that was going to be difficult because Obama campaigned against the Iraq policy. It was the bad war. Afghanistan was the good war. But what's interesting, of course, is we gave him both an agreement, which allowed us to leave our forces past 2008, 2009, even though the UN mandate had, uh, had 
for those forces had expired, and a, a strategic framework for cooperation with Iraq. And the irony is that the Obama administration, to a large extent, embraced both of those agreements as the framework for its policy. Uh, and it's, it's a dirty little secret in, in foreign policy that many times there's more continuity between administrations, even administrations of different parties, than you would think if you listen to our presidential debates about foreign policy, which are usually about straw men and red herrings. <laughs> well, this is one where uh, President Obama actually uh, pursued the Iraq policy heavily in the framework that the Bush administration left for him. There's this whole, this big dispute about whether he should have needed to and should have pulled out the troops in 2011. I think in retrospect, it's pretty clear that was a mistake, an unnecessary mistake. But again, you know, he, I think, largely operated within the, the framework we provided. Right. Bush the, said very the key, the key point, though, just to interrupt briefly, because he pulled out those troops, he wasn't optimizing the framework that he inherited, right? Because I mean, that would not have been the posture right. that a Bush administration would have recommended, counterterrorism, stability, to continue the training, the sorts of things that those troops yeah. in Iraq were doing. Exactly right. And I think the effect was that Maliki thought he was now free to pursue a more sectarian agenda. He also politicized his military so that when the ISIS came in in 2014, the, the Iraqi military collapsed and suddenly uh, ISIS was in control of 40% of, of Iraq. Iran. Iran. You know, Iran was a problem. Syria was a problem. Syria was a the Damascus airport was a vehicle by which a lot of jihadis made their way into Iraq. Uh, Iran was messing in Iraq. We had it pretty well under control, partly uh, less by diplomacy than more by a variety of hard power actions that made it clear that Iraq, that Iranians messing around in Iraq were fair game for our forces. We arrested some Quds Force members just to underscore that point. So I would say that Dave Petraeus had the Iran situation pretty much under control. But Iran uh, took advantage of the need to rid the country of ISIS between 2014 and 2016. And Iranian-trained militia had a big role in supporting Iraqi security forces and ridding the country of ISIS. And that, unfortunately, has legitimized them in some sense as part of the Iraqi framework. One of the reasons why the prime minister of Iraq, a Shia, came to Washington and said to President Biden, we want American troops to stay in Iraq, even though there are only about 2,500 of them in a training and support role, is because they help him balance Iranian influence. We had a view from the very beginning, and it's turned out to be right, that for Iraqi Shia, nationalism would trump sectarianism. That is to say, they would be Iraqi nationalists first, rather than wanting to be subordinate to Iran. And I think that is proved to be correct. And one of the reasons we need to continue our presence in Iraq is precisely to help Iraqis check Iranian influence. Uh, a great set of points. And, and it is fascinating that you have the Shia 
prime minister prime minister making that that case to president biden and it it, it and it the, the power sharing and and giving the shia iraqis a place in government you know it's it's to your point looks like it's it's a, it's a way to uh create this buffer um in terms of iran's influence exactly. and, and dominance in the region although we're seeing it elsewhere certainly uh S syria being uh, uh top of mind there too and then uh within uh west bank and and and, and gaza as well Let, let's move to afghanistan we reference as as a good war so okay so you knew what you were passing along in this in these transition memos on iraq you know we're going to be treated certainly you know with a political lens but afghanistan right that the expectation was you're going to have some continuity how did that play out and and um you know take us through to today where of course we with the Biden administration had just the no other way to describe it the, the failed withdrawal of u.s forces from afghanistan uh which the implications were tragic not only for uh, U.S. personnel on the ground, but then geopolitically, I mean, the, the, the green light it's given to autocrats and dictators to, to, uh, to do the same elsewhere, thinking, of course, about Ukraine. But, but talk about the, the Afghanistan component of this book. Again, we tried to, uh, we had done a review of Afghanistan policy. Actually, everybody thinks we ignored Afghanistan to do Iraq. One of the interesting things from these transition memos, as you can see, at the same time, we were doing a review of Iraq policy that resulted in the surge in January of 2007. We're also doing a review of Afghanistan policy and increasing our presence there, both economically and militarily. We tried, we did another review right before the transition in January of 2009. And we presented that with the new administration. We said, this is our review. This is what we think we need to do to improve our prospects in, in, in Afghanistan for a stable, prosperous Afghanistan. We're prepared to do these things or we're prepared to leave it to you. Mm. And the Obama administration largely said, let it, leave it for us, we'll do our own review. And they of course struggled with, uh, the, and had their own surge in Afghanistan, which did not have the success that it did in Iraq. But they did transition from this model of a major US footprint to buy with and through local Iraq, Afghan forces. So that in 2013, 2014, US forces are out of the combat mission. Our numbers are dramatically reduced and we're supporting and training Afghans to take responsibility for their own security. We thought that situation would be sustainable for the long period of time that would be required for the Afghan people to be able to organize uh, an effective government. And I think one of the lessons from all of this is that these kinds of difficult assignments take a long time and they take multiple administrations. Look, we, we helped Europe rebuild after the ravages of World War II, Japan after World War II, South Korea after the Korean War. We still have tens of thousands of troops in all three of those locations. So this kind of helping countries build prosperous, enduring, sustainable, secure democracies takes a long time. It requires then a bipartisan consensus and support of the American people that transcends administrations. We clearly were unable to create that in Iraq, which became very divisive politically. We thought we had it in Afghanistan, but quite frankly, President Biden, I think, 
some years into the Obama administration, decided he wanted to pull all the troops out. And when he became president, that's exactly what he did. I, I haven't criticized them publicly. I think, however, my own view was um, that our model was sustainable. And I think the, the, the burden of, of, of responsibility for getting out of Iraq is quite frankly shared by the Trump and the Biden administrations. Trump administration because they started this negotiation that committed us to leave. And then the Biden administration uh, not enforcing that agreement and just pulling out the, the troops altogether. Let, let, let's let's do a couple of follow up points on, on Afghanistan. And we'll, we'll begin where you, you just concluded in terms of this kind of falls at the feet of not only the Biden administration, but also Trump administration. And you're referencing uh, their negotiation with the Taliban and uh, which, of course, the Biden administration said they were beholden to. I don't quite buy into the notion that an executive agreement is something that uh, a nec- another president is, is bound by in any way. Certainly, when you're dealing with the Taliban, and you can, there was every, you know, so many examples of how they were violating the terms of the agreement that uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had negotiated. Um, but if you just zoom out for a moment, you know, here we are, 2023. And we look at Iraq and there's this democracy that is functioning at times dysfunctional, but it carries on. And, and Steve, you said earlier, you see it getting stronger and, 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 and becoming more functional. And now we look at Afghanistan and it's run by the Taliban. Um, just reflect on that also uh, in light of, of the transition memos, because I'm pretty confident that in 2009, if you had to predict which one was going to be the d- democracy in 2023 and which one uh, would not, you probably were thinking Iraq was a question mark, but Afghanistan, we're, we're doing okay. Maybe I'm wrong. I think you're right. You know, the problem, there were a lot of problems with that agreement that was negotiated, but the biggest problem was the Taliban made some commitments and our withdrawal of forces was conditioned of course, on the Taliban fulfilling those commitments. The Taliban did not fulfill those commitments, and yet we continued to draw down our troops. And finally, under President Biden, we pulled them out altogether. That was, I think, the real failing. Um, There there are articles now that saying, you know, that the Taliban are making the train runs on, the trains run on time. You know, they're, uh, they're collecting revenues, they're uh, uh, pr- providing justice. Uh, you look at the suffering of women and children in Afghanistan today and look at where the society is heading. And it's a tragedy. It's just a tragedy. It's a tragedy for the Afghan people. I am still hopeful that with the Afghan people having had 20 years of freedom, admittedly, with a lot of problems, a government that was corrupt, that was not providing services, a security situation which, because of the Taliban, was not stable. I get all that. But I'm still hopeful that the Afghan people having 20 years of freedom will, in some sense, at some point, force the Taliban to accommodate them and that the regime over time will become uh, more benign. But I must say, while that is my hope, as I look at what's happening in Afghanistan today, I don't see it. Yeah, I mean, and it I, seems that this is this is the same crowd 
ruling the same way as they did in the 1990s. This, I mean, the authorization to use military force, and of course, the Al Qaeda is, is not nearly the Al Qaeda it was. I mean, there's no remnant of it, right? You've had these offshoots, but it's the same Taliban, right? It is the same I, Taliban. I, 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 what, what follow up on, on, on this point because there's another way Afghanistan uh, could come back to U.S. foreign policy and national security policy, uh, despite what uh, uh, President Biden may want, and that is the reemergence of terrorist organizations being given, you know, ungoverned space uh, by the Taliban. I mean, you've had public testimony from the Department of Defense saying that ISIS has now found Afghanistan as a place where it could build up and start planning uh, terrorist attacks on U.S. And, and U.S. interests around the world. So, you know, it's, it, there is this kind of layer of uh, irony and, and, and tragedy where the Iraq, again, is not the place where ISIS reconstituted, as you pointed out. When they emerged in 2014, the response was pushed out, and, and the 40% they controlled, uh, they were moving. They're kind of in this border area and in, and, and in Syria, but that's hostile ground. So now, when now Afghanistan's Taliban controlled, we're seeing this. And so this notion that somehow we could manage our counterterrorism or terrorism concerns through counterterrorism from the, the Gulf, you know, and, and, and being on the ground as a necessary is really going to be tested. Give me your, give me your take on, on that and, and, and your mindset in terms of the likelihood or possibility that uh, Afghanistan will once again be the launching point for terrorist attacks against Western interests. That's the risk. And you know, there was, as the Biden administration was coming into office, the Afghan study group, which was chaired, co-chaired by Joe Dunford and Nancy Lindborg and Senator, former Senator Kelly Ayotte, wrote a report. I served uh, on their, that study group. And it was offered a way in which we could uh, retain troops on the ground in support of the Afghans. Uh, until the Taliban actually complied with their obligations under the agreement that the Trump, the, the Trump administration signed with them. And one of the things we said is if we do not do that, and if uh, all U.S. military presence in Afghanistan is removed, the, the best judgment of the Intelligence Community Act at the time was that in 18 to 36 months, Afghanistan would reconstitute as a base for terrorism that would threaten not only our friends and allies, but also potentially the United States as well. And that's what ISIS is in the process of putting together. The Taliban are fighting ISIS, not as effectively as they need to. ISIS, I think, is making progress. We also have this problem that Pakistan, which had a very two-faced policy on Afghanistan supporting to be our friend and ally against terrorism, while in fact providing covert support to the Taliban, is now in a situation where the Pakistani Taliban are using Afghanistan as a base from which to conduct terrorist operations in Pakistan, the way the Afghan Taliban were able to use Pakistan to conduct terrorist activities in, in Afghanistan. What goes around comes around. And we used to tell the Pakistanis, they're, you think they're you're terrorists and the other guy's terrorists, good terrorists and bad terrorists. They're all terrorists. And at some point, they will come for you. And unfortunately, that's what Pakistan is seeing today. So I think 
the jury is out on whether Afghanistan will be reconstituted as a source of terrorism, certainly against Pakistan, but also against other countries in the region and through ISIS, potentially against the United States. We're with Steve Hadley, who is a author, editor of Handoff, the Foreign Policy George W. Bush Passed to Barack Obama. Uh, let's move to other aspects of, of, of foreign policy, national security policy. Of course, Afghanistan and Iraq were the, the focus of your time as national security advisor and managing two wars. But in 2008, Putin invades Georgia and the conduct that the whole world now uh, sees and has witnessed with President Putin's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, you saw firsthand when he moved into South Ossetia and Abkhazia back in 2008, the end of your administration. That's one of those where it was kind of glaring continuity uh, but of course, it was not the sort of thing uh, you were able to. It could have been, you know, the primary focus. Let's put it that way, of of the Bush administration. Talk to us about the transition memos and the treatment of of Putin uh, as you were exiting the White House. It was certainly not the Putin that President Bush encountered at the beginning uh, of his administration, as he famously, you know, said, "This is someone he thought he could he can work with." So one of the things that's uh, interesting about these transition memos is particularly the one on Russia and China, reading them and seeing how different the Russia and China that Bush faced at the beginning of his administration was the Russia and China that we face today. I think the other thing I would say is, you know, there's a view out there that all the Bush administration did was Iraq, Afghanistan and the war on terror, and it didn't have room to do anything else. And one of the reasons we put all these transition memos out, if you just read the table of contents yeah. of the book, you'll see that, you know, we're doing 40 things simultaneously all the time. And it's not just the Bush administration. That's the way the U.S. government is, because if you're the United States in the world today, you've got 40 pots on the stove and they're all close to boil and you've got to be working all of them. And that your your government, America, is trying to do that for you. And it's important for people to understand. But Putin, you know, at the beginning of the of the Bush administration, for whatever reason, the Putin we saw was a was a Putin that Bush used to say to him, Vladimir, you have a historic opportunity to bring Russia permanently into the West. One of my favorite books that my wife and I are reading is called The Icon and the Axe by James Billington. And you see that for 400 years, Russia has been struggling with its relationship with the West. Is the West a friend? Is the West a foe? And we thought with the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the death of communism, there might be a chance to bring Russia permanently into the West. And Bush would say that to Putin. And Putin would say, Mr. President, that's what I want to do. But there are dark forces in Russia. Uh, and you need to let me do it over time and in my own way, because we must not awaken those forces. But what you see over the transition memo is we did a lot of cooperation with Russia and got a lot of good cooperation with Russia on proliferation, terrorism, and all the rest. But while we were trying to build a cooperative relationship with Russia, 
he was becoming more and more authoritarian at home. And where we really lost him was in the color revolutions of 2003, four and five in Georgia, Ukraine and Kyrgyzstan. These were popular uprisings to try to, to build more accountable governments. And we thought this would be a good thing because stable, accountable governments would be good neighbors for Russia. Putin didn't see it that way. He thought these uprisings were inspired by the CIA as a way to put anti-Russian regimes in control of these countries and as a dress rehearsal for destabilizing Russia itself. And that was the conclusion he drew from the color revolutions. And of course, in, he goes into Georgia in 2008 and tries to, quite frankly, overturn the democratically elected government in Georgia. We're able to frustrate him from that objective. And the end of the day, he withdraws his troops back into Abkhazia and Ossetia, South Ossetia, which is they were before the invasion. But we all said at the time, if we don't make Putin pay a strategic price for going into Georgia, today it will be Georgia, figuratively, tomorrow it will be Ukraine, and the day after that, it'll be the Baltic states. And if he goes into the Baltic states who are members of NATO, that means it's a war between Russia and NATO. And we don't, and we that's don't want not to a get good there. Outcome. Yeah, and we don't that's want not to... a good place to go. Right. Well, he you got to mention he... in that summary, maybe hit on NATO as well, because you did have in 2008 uh, the opportunity, giving the, the kind of the map process, the accession opportunity right. for Georgia, which those right now in our debate in February 20, you know, since February 2022 is there's always this mindset. Well, the U.S. is to blame. There's this kind of view that Vladimir Putin is 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 taking actions because of something we've done, which I, doesn't that really appeal to me because as, as powerful and as impactful the United States is, I don't think autocrats and leaders uh, in, in the world are, are making their decisions based on what the U.S. You know, because they're a victim of, of U.S. policy. But but love for you to talk about the NATO component as you're outlining the evolution or devolution of, of Vladimir Putin. So the narrative about that Bucharest summit in summer of 2008, when the United States pushed for Ukraine and Georgia to get a membership action plan, which would be put them on the road to NATO membership. And a lot of people say that our effort to push that was a provocation for Putin and caused him to go into Georgia. I think people are now beginning to give that a second look. And I think there's a counter narrative that's going to be beginning to move that the problem was that we didn't get map for Georgia and Ukraine. And what the debate revealed was that Germany and France were almost unalterably opposed to Georgia and Ukraine becoming part of NATO. And I think it rather than being a provocation for Putin, it became an opportunity for Putin. An invitation. They would not be in the, an invitation to Putin, which he began to cash in on 2008 in Georgia and 2014 in Ukraine. And it's interesting. To, and it was the display of divisions that gave him the opportunity. It's interesting that the only two countries he's invaded are the two countries in that part of the world that aren't members of NATO. You know, there's what I call the, the Vietnam conceit that came out of the Vietnam era, that if only U.S. government had the right policies, all would be right in the world. We're not that smart and we're not that po powerful. 
and countries get to make their own decisions and the leaders of countries matter. And I was thinking the other day, nobody expected Gorbachev to be the leader he was in terms of the Soviet Union. And it turns out that he was a leader that was, I think, in the interest of the people of Russia, but also the interest of the United States. Nobody also similarly expected Xi Jinping to be the leader he has become over the last 10 years in China. And it is unfortunately a leader that has taken his country in a direction that I think is bad for the Chinese people and is certainly not in the interest of the United States. So let's go to China. That was a great discussion on the Russia piece. We could talk about that for, for another hour, but we're, we're coming towards the end of our conversation. And before we get to our lightning round, let's hit on, on what you just uh, ended with, which is China, because in 2009, these transition memos are coming over. You know, the language from the memo says it, the best means of influencing the emergence of China as a global power and encouraging its integration to the international system is this continued engagement. And here we are a decade and a half later or so, and that has been viewed as, as a mistake by many. And whether you viewed it as a mistake or not, it certainly hasn't worked out because we're in this new, new era where China, of course, is, my view, an adversary in the more diplomatic way of speaking, you know, our competitor, and certainly is not embracing Western norms and is seeking to advance its autocratic, communist kind of form of government, not just within its sovereign territory, but in the Indo-Pacific and, and across the world. Give us your take on how the transition memos uh, kind of play out in the world of 2023 as it relates to China? Well, there's the interesting thing about the transition memos on China is there's two of them. One about China and one about our relationships in Northeast Asia. And that's really important. Look, the China of Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao was a China that wanted a benign international environment so we could focus on development. It was not trying to revise the international order. It desperately wanted to be part of the international order and it wanted a constructive relationship with the United States. So we took that at face value. We had a constructive relationship with China. We document that in the transition memo and we tried to bring China into the international system. Now, there are people who say, you was a misreading, the communist party was always there. They had this driven ideology, which was anti-Western and it's true. But under Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, the Communist Party was in decline. Governmental institutions were having more and more power and more and more with the, the party was hardly talked about. I remember being in Beijing with President Bush and Wen Jiaobao, then the premier, talked about how much religious freedom there was in Russia, in China and how many Bibles there were in the country. This was a different China. And we thought, we should try to bring it into the international system so that it would be a supporter of that system and not act contrary to our interests. But we hedged our bets. At the same time as that second transition memo makes clear, we're strengthening our relationships with Japan, uh, with, with South Korea. We're strengthening our relationship with Australia. We're enhancing our own presence in the region economically, diplomatically, and militarily. That's what the TPP, the Trans-Pacific 
Pacific Partnership was supposed to do. This is the, consolidate. The, trade deal, the big trade framework. The big trade framework was important strategically to consolidate our friends and allies in a framework at which we were at the center. And we also, of course, established a strategic relationship with India, which is now very important. We established the Quad where Japan, India, the United States uh, and Australia are working together in part to deal with China. So my point is we had a strategy. It made sense at the time, try to bring China into the international system, but as a hedge, strengthen our friends and allies. And it is those allied relationships that the Biden administration is using to try to change, to deal with the China today that emerged with Hu Jintao, sorry, with with Xi Jinping in 2012. Four years after the end of the Bush administration, a leader who has a very different vision for China than his two well, predecessors. A, a, a party ideologue I mean, is, is really the, the big shift you're emphasizing. But you, you, you answered my follow-up question, but perhaps you want to put a, uh, a last declarative statement on it before we go to the lightning round, which is to, to those who claim that the Bush administration, George W. Bush administration, was so focused on Iraq and Afghanistan and responding to 9-11 that it didn't adequately understand, invest, uh, or focus on the China challenges as it should have, should have given what we know now. That second memo you just referenced, I guess, is, is the response, but go ahead if, if you want to hit it, address that. It is the response. The we hedged, we built these alliances so that if China went in a different direction, we'd be in a position to manage it. China did go in a different direction. Why? It's because Xi Jinping had a very different view for his country than his predecessors. Uh, And he basically decided that the West was in decline, the United States was in terminal decline, and this was China's moment to step into the center stage and to take its rightful position in the world stage. And he started throwing his weight around at the expense of his neighbors diplomatically, economically, and militarily. And, and the interesting thing about that- the freedom of his own people. I mean, that to me is, it, is probably gonna be his undoing. I think he's made two strategic mistakes. One, he changed China policy too soon. Hmm. Huawei was gonna wire the world and we were all gonna be dependent on China for everything if he had just let things go. But because he changed China's policy, He woke up the sleeping dragon and the sleeping dragon was the United States and the American people to the China challenge. And secondly, by his intrusion in the economy and his war on the private sector, he's killed the goose that laid the golden egg, which is the Chinese economic performance. And that's why he's relying more on nationalism for legitimacy, because he can no longer rely on the kind of high single digit or double digit growth that was his deal with the Chinese people. I'll give you economic growth, you let me rule. That's uh, no longer uh, the the basis of his rule. Uh, Let's move to our lightning round. Uh, Fascinating conversation. Steve Hadley, of course, former National Security Advisor and author of Handoff, the Foreign Policy George W. Bush passed to Barack Obama. Uh, What a great contribution to public record and in declassifying these memos, an important conversation of how we should approach transitioning between governments, transition of power, as it relates to the most important constitutional duty a president of the United States carries out, and that is serving as the commander in chief. Here, uh, let's go back in time where where we get Steve Hadley's take on 
his favorite book on Reagan, favorite Reagan speech, and or favorite Reagan quote. I know you got a couple ready to go. Well, Will Inboden has a new book on Reagan foreign policy, which I've not yet read, but I'm looking forward to. And it's gotten great reviews, and I would would recommend it to people who want to have a, a, he wrote a good that take book on Reagan. As he was working on, on your book as well. The, the, this yes, is, he was. What a, a National Security Council staffer, the only kind who can do two things at once. Okay. He's a, he's a talented guy. Uh, favorite speeches, I have to say, are, are the SDI speech. Uh, and also the Westminster speech on freedom. Uh, powerful statements and visionary statements by Ronald Reagan. Um, I'm going to do one follow-up. The Westminster, you know, I've, I've, I've gotten to know you in the years since you left the White House and, 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 and your time, as we've been discussed, uh, understanding and, and valuing and promoting freedom is, I know, so important to you. And, of course, that's... Uh, what President Reagan did in the Westminster speech, the creating the infrastructure for the the, the NED and, and and the umbrella organizations. Tell me why SDI speaks to you so much. You know, I was thinking a question that you were going to ask me, but haven't, which is how what, what is the continuity between Bush forty three and Reagan? And I was going to say to you, one, both of them are peace through strength presidents. I mean, Condi and I have a preface in the book about a balance of power that favors freedom. Bush didn't just propose freedom. He also knew an effort to advance freedom had to be supported by uh, the United States working with friends and allies to bring the full weight of its diplomacy, economic might, and military presence behind that agenda. So they're both, he followed Reagan in terms of being a peace with strengths guy. Secondly, they were both about ballistic missile defense. Yes. Reagan got us into the business. Bush, of course, gets us out of the ABM treaty that allows us to pursue ballistic missile defense. And given what North Korea is doing today in terms of threatening us and our friends and allies in the region with ballistic missiles that potentially will have be armed with the nuclear weapons he's developing and what Iran is doing, it's a good thing we have ballistic missile defense. And the third thing is, of course, they're both freedom guys. I know yes. it's not fashionable today. For, for Reagan, it, it played out in Europe in terms of, of confronting Soviet power. Bush, of course, it played out heavily in the Middle East, which is a different context. But they're both uh, uh, stand, believers in promoting and standing up for American values, and particularly freedom, democracy, human rights, rule of law. So, you know, there's a lot more continuity in foreign policy than people think. A lot of people think Bush is a departure for Reagan. I would say that he stood in his shoes. Steve Hadley, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It was great to be with you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.